This morning's passage is from Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Good morning, church. Oh, a joy to see you. Wonderful to be worshiping in this place. Kerwin, I'm glad you wore a sweatshirt today. I don't feel near as alone. I didn't wear this, though, because uh, it was a sweatshirt. I wore it because I was looking for something red. I live in a city where there is no joy. But I am going to, when I leave Carlton Landing today, I'm going back to Norman, and I'm going to tell them the sun did come out today. It really, really did. I hope it's all right to have a good time on the journey. If it's not, please don't tell some of us. And if there is any person here today, I don't know that there is, but if you are here visiting and you have not heard Pastor Cole Preach and teach. You've got to come back. You really do. I hope you know, church, you have one of the finest, best teaching pastors I know of anywhere, and especially in this whole state of Oklahoma. When he contacted me and told me about he was, was going to be going and the series he was doing, in the meantime, I've gone back and I've listened to all of the messages in the series. I didn't have to do that. He didn't ask me to do it, but I wanted to do it. And uh, what a great, uh, a great gift he is to the body of Christ and to you. And I, I, I know that you realize that already. When Pastor Cole began this series on Ephesians, uh, he did what most of us would have done. He took, I think, the first Sunday, perhaps, and, and established some of the background information about uh, Ephesians. It's very important, I think, uh, for you and I to have as much background information on all the books of the Bible that we can for a number of reasons. But one of them is simply this. 
It gives you an advantage over other people sitting in the sanctuary hearing the same sermon uh, that may not know that, that, that material. It's not a prideful thing. It's not an arrogant thing. It's not a, a measure of spirituality. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is like this. Have you ever, if you are a sports fan, and, and we could make the illustration about music or anything else, but if you've looked forward to watching a ball game, have you ever had to watch a ball game with somebody that doesn't even know the rules? I'm, I mean, you know all the players. You know where they went to school. You know the stats. You know the schedule. You know the plays. You know everything. And they're sitting there, and they say, I've got a question. Why do they jump on each other? And then they get up and they get in these little groups and then they do it again, you know. And so uh, there's an advantage when the pastor says, turn with me to Ephesians. There are some things that ought to kick into our minds immediately that we know about Ephesians. Even before the pastor gets to the chapter and verse. And uh, there are some things, I'll just tell you quickly what they are for me there's something about the city, there's something about the church, there's something about the correspondence. When the pastor or the teacher, wherever I'm at, says, turn with me to Ephesians, here's what I, I think about that city of Ephesus. It was a large, affluent, prosperous city. Several hundred thousand people. It was like most of the cities Paul went to that's recorded in the Scripture uh, it was uh, located right on the coast, just like our largest cities for the most part are here in America and in most countries around the world. People like to live by the sea. And in that day especially, their economic situation was greatly uh, uh, contingent upon uh, the shipping industry and, and the trade. Uh, Ephesus was also a wicked city, and I know Pastor brought out about uh, the temple uh, to Artemis, the false god, uh, also called the Diana was another name given to that false god. And Ephesus was a place of great wickedness and demonic activity. And then there's something that comes to my mind related to the church, okay? Um, the church at... at uh, Ephesus was established by Paul on one of his missionary journeys. And there's something we, we are really privileged we can do. You can read along in the book of Acts and see where Paul traveled. And then you can find a, in many times a corresponding epistle that he wrote to, uh, to after he left them sometime. For example, in chapter 16, Paul went to Philippi. And out of that, we get the letter to the Philippians. In chapter 17, he went to Thessalonica. And out of that, we get the letter to the Thessalonians. You're doing good so far. Chapter 18, he went to Corinth. And out of that, we get two letters to the Corinthians. In chapter 19 and 20, he goes to Ephesus. And we get the wonderful letter that we're studying now, Ephesians. And... Uh, we're reminded that this was the longest time Paul stayed anywhere in his missionary trips when he got to Ephesus. He was at Thessalonica only three weeks, and he had to leave, had to flee for his life. He was at Corinth a year and a half, but double that, he was at Ephesus for three years. So he obviously knows these people very well. 
And I was intrigued by the teaching of the pastor when he said, well, it's unusual because when you read in Ephesians, Paul is writing this letter, but he doesn't mention any recipient by name, which he does a lot in his other letters. And in addition to all of the, the, the wonderful truth we heard as to an answer to that question, it appears when Paul is writing the letter to the Ephesians, he's not focusing on that one local church. He is not dealing with any particular issue like he did in Corinthians with all their problems. He's talking about the universal church to the Ephesians. He's talking about to the body of Christ, the believers everywhere. And that perhaps gives uh, us a little more insight into that issue. And then finally, there's something that when the pastor says, turn with me to Ephesians I'm thinking about what kind of category it's put in with the writings of Paul. And we are reminded that Ephesians is a prison epistle. What do we mean by that? Paul was in prison when he wrote it. How do we know that? He says so in the letter. He talks about being in chains. He talks about being incarcerated. And so we believe when the book of Acts comes to an end... Somewhere around 60 to 62 A.D., Paul was under house arrest of some kind. He was in prison, and he wrote to the Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and to Philemon. And I would just say this has been true of uh, the church since the beginning. You can put the men and women of God in prison, but not only will the Lord many times deliver them and see them through, out of the prison will not only come that believer, but also some of the greatest writings that we have ever read, seen, or heard. You can put John Bunyan in prison, but he'll just write Pilgrim's Progress. You can put Dietrich Bonhoeffer in prison, but he'll write The Cost of Discipleship. You can put Martin Luther King Jr. in prison and some of his most Powerful writings will come out of that experience. And so I'm thinking when the pastor says, turn with me to Ephesians, I'm, I'm thinking all, all these things going through my mind just that quick. And I've got a, my, my computer's not up to date like yours, okay? I, I still do the DOS systems, okay? And some of the floppy disk. And if I can think of all these things just like that, why, you, you people can be way ahead of me. Well, the pastor not only uh, laid the groundwork, he, in the last couple of Sundays, it's just excellent teaching from chapter 1. I loved it when he talked about the longest sentence in the New Testament. You remember that? In chapter 1, from verse 3 to verse 14, in the original, evidently, it's all one long sentence where he started out, blessed be the Lord, and he just starts talking about all the things the Lord has done for us. Wow. And um, it, it's all from verse 3 to verse 14, one, one sentence. I remember when I taught Bible and theology for 15 years at, at the college, and I had to grade a lot of papers, I would read some of the sentences to my, to my wife, some of the students, j just for our entertainment at night, you know. And... Uh, there, was, there were times, because my, my students were just like probably you all when you all went. I, I, I would go and I'd put a little circle on the, 
on the board. And I'd say, what is this? And they would guess all kind of things. And I'd say, no, I tell you what, it's called a period. Okay? I know you're not familiar with it, but it's a wonderful literary device. It means stop. (laughs) And the good news, I would tell them, you don't have to say everything in a single sentence. You can start another sentence. It's all right, but most of the students like those squiggly things, commas, you know, and conjunctions, and it just ran on. The longest sentence that I had that I remember grading was a young man named Daniel, 84 words in one sentence. How would you like to have uh, diagrammed that sentence, okay? He kind of carried that, I think, as a badge of honor. That was his one great achievement, okay? In his academic career, he had the record until Kristen came along a few years later and she shattered the record with 91 words in a single sentence. And I read that thing to my wife and she said, what are you going to do? But then I thought, wait a minute, they may just be an Apostle Paul. Maybe they're the makings of a good theologian here. Paul just, there is so much he wants to say about the Lord. And You'll find out as you go through this whole letter of of Ephesians, those first three chapters of Ephesians are focusing on what Christ has done for us. When we get to chapter 4 through 6, it's what we're to do for him. So Paul gives the theology first, and then he gives the uh, practical application. Now, last uh, last Sunday was a great uh, service, and... um, uh, a great message because we were in chapter 2. And pastor said, he reminded us, we were all dead in trespasses and sins. We weren't just sick and needed a doctor. We were dead and needed a resurrection. We needed life. And that's what he has done for us. And do you remember he got down to about verse 4 and he said, but God. Two words. See, I, I did listen, didn't I? Okay. But God, the gospel in two words, but God. How many times it looked like things were going one way, but God, but God who is rich in his mercy and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul said he quickened us together, he raised us up together, he makes us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wow. And then he said in verse 7 of chapter 2, in the ages to come, In other words, it'll take forever. God's going to show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. And then he said, by grace are you saved through faith. It's the gift of God. It's not of works lest any man should boast. We are the workmanship of Christ. Ah, the richness of the first half of Ephesians 2. I really, really, really wish the pastor would have let me come last week and deal with that. Instead of, uh, I'm, now I'm not accusing him of just picking out a conference just to leave me with this one. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying uh, all of a sudden it seems like instead of talking about what he's done for us in individual saving grace, Paul gets a little deeper. So I hope you've got your life jacket on. Or you can swim. If not, get a hold of somebody close by, and we'll see if we can navigate this text starting in verse 11. Um, I I have brought what I 
I, I think may have been what the scripture reading came from. And this is one increasingly one of my favorite translations of the Bible. It's called large print edition. And so that's why I've, I, I've brought this. But it is the ESV. And there's two things, not 22, not 12, just two that I want to highlight from chapter 2. One, Christ has torn down something. And the other, he's built up something. And if we can walk out realizing what Christ tore down and what Christ has built up, then I think we will have grasped the essence of this text. When you get to verse 11, Paul says, therefore. King James says, wherefore. We discovered a long time ago, what do you do when you come to a verse that says, therefore? What do you do? Find out what it's there for. Now, how do you do that? Well, you got to go back and read what you just read. So if we, if we had the time, we would go back and not only read all of chapter 2, we'd need to start with the whole letter. But since I gave you that, that review, I hope that will suffice. Paul said, in light of that, in light of all that he's done in saving us by grace, quickening us and giving us spiritual life, he said, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision by the people that were called the circumcised. Now, the, the thing that God has broken down in this text, we're going to find out, is the great division and the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is saying for every person that comes into right relationship with God, one of the benefits of that is God has also broken down something. And there's not going to be that enmity and there cannot be that hatred and that division between Jews and Gentiles anymore in Christ. Uncircumcised was a ethnic slur that Jewish people for centuries would say about Gentiles. Even David, whom we love, in the story about David and Goliath, when David heard about Goliath, do you remember what he said? He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the armies of the living God? And the circumcised in this passage are the Jewish people. That's not to say that Jews are the only ones that practice historically circumcision, but they came to be identified chiefly circumcision as the physical sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And so Paul is saying, at one time, you Gentiles, and that lets us know he's, he could be, he's in one sense speaking to both Jews and Gentiles, but he has Gentiles in the readership. Uh, Gentiles, and that's why I think it's not just a message to the Ephesian church, but for the whole body of Christ. He's saying there was a time you Gentiles were the recipients of uh, an ethnic slur by Jewish people. They just called you the uncircumcised. And he said their circumcision came by hands. That is, that's, that's something that humans do to other humans, but circumcision is not a work of the heart. And that's what, that's what was needed. Look what he said in verse 12. Remember you at that time were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in this world. 
That's pretty bad diagnosis, isn't it? You were separated. You were alienated. You were away from God. You were away from the commonwealth of Israel. You, you were a long ways from God, and you had no hope. You remember that? Ah, how could anyone forget that? But he's saying that now to Gentile Christians. That was your condition. We go to verse 13. What does the text say? But, there's that conjunction again, but now. Last week it was, but God. And this Sunday, Paul's good news is, but now. Isn't it wonderful news that uh, you and I are not what we used to be? We're not the person we were. We're not a million miles away from God. We're not hopeless and helpless anymore. But now, verse three said, or verse 13 said, we are in Christ Jesus. You who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Some of us were a long, long, long ways from him, but now we've been brought near because of what Jesus did on the cross. And then, with a wonderful stroke of his pen, verse 14, Paul said, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Amen. He broke it down. The very first song we sang, our brother led us this morning, when you got to the chorus, it talked about the walls that, that he broke down. He broke something down. It may be Paul had in his mind when he wrote this, the temple. The Jewish temple where the outer court, there was a place where Gentiles could come. It was called the court of the Gentiles. But the inner court, going inside to where the holy place and the most holy place where there were signs everywhere, no Gentiles allowed. This might be what is in Paul's mind when he said he broke down that railing. He took down those signs. He made it possible that you and I who were not Jewish could come into the very presence of God. What a wonderful truth. Whether or not that was in Paul's mind or not, it is very clear, according to the next verse, in verse 15, that Paul has in mind the Mosaic Covenant. That was the thing that brought the, the enmity and separated Jews and Gentiles. Why, Jews couldn't hardly keep it themselves, much less expect Gentiles to keep all of these specific laws that had been commanded. But verse 15 said he abolished the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Did you hear the good news in Carlton Landing today? It's not just Jews or Gentiles, but there is a, another body that's been formed and is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. It's the church of the living God. Paul said that to the Corinthians in his first letter, chapter 10, verse 32. He said, there's the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church of God. Verse 16, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
That's a great text. Christ's message was the same whether you were a Jew or a Gentile. He preached to those who were far off and he preached to those who were very near. You say, well, aren't all lost people the same? Yeah, you're, if you're lost, you're lost. It doesn't matter if you're, you're a little lost or a long lost, but evidently there is this passage, those who were near, that's the Jewish people. They were near to the gospel. They had the Old Testament. The oracles of God had been entrusted to them, but those who were afar, that were, that were, were Gentiles. Do you remember one time Jesus said to a rich young ruler, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're close. Do you remember one time King Herod Agrippa II said, almost, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Sometimes some people are close and near. Some, they are afar. But he came and preached to both. And he preached what? Peace. He has broken down the wall. The broken down, the enmity. Notice this, this is in chapter 2. It's in that section I told you, the first three chapters, what Christ has done for us. He's not saying, now that you're saved, work this out between the two of you and come to some kind of peace. No, he's saying, Christ has already done this. He broke down the, the walls. There is no more. That's why he said to the Galatians, there's no more Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male or female. In Christ, we are one. Aren't you glad that he broke down the barrier, the wall, the enmity, that that kept people away? What good news. And in verse 18, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Access. The wall's been, been broken and taken down. I remember several years ago in our hometown, the Norman uh, transcript, our newspaper, someone had written a letter to the editor, and it was very interesting talking about a trip that their family had made to Philadelphia to see the Liberty Bell. And so this citizen who was writing the letter said their family waited in line in the hot summer sun. They bought tickets to go in. Finally, the line, you know, got smaller and they got inside. Said they were able to see pictures of the presidents and those who were directly involved in some of the early years, you know, of the founding of our nation all around. And uh, the writer said, we knew we were not going to be able to get close to the Liberty Bell. It was heavily guarded, signs everywhere, cameras shining down. And uh, there was a, one of those red velvet ropes that had been stretched out you could see it but but you weren't uh, it was very clear nobody was really going to get close to it but he said to our amazement a park ranger appeared with a woman and he got a hold of her hand he opened up the the rail and led her over to the bell and let her touch it and he said we were all stunned They'd been saying, you know, don't do this. You can't touch this. You can't do it. And he, he said, none of us knew what was happening until we realized what was going on. She was blind. She could not see. Some way, somehow, somebody had made a request and the work had been done. And even though she couldn't see, they led her all the way to have an unforgettable encounter. Touching the Liberty Bell. And she expressed her thanks for the freedom of our land. 
Do you understand, my brother, my sister today, what, what Christ has done for us? The law said we couldn't go in. The law said we had to stay out. The wall said we're forever separated. But grace grabbed us by the hand and said, come on. And you can have a, a, an encounter through the Spirit for what Christ has done. We have access to God. The veil of the temple was rent. We know that from top to bottom. And here Paul is saying something else came down, and that's that wall that divided Jews and Gentiles. God doesn't have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. He's formed a new, a new body, one church. Okay, that's the thing that's come down, and we finish the chapter with what he has built up. Look in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure both joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He tore down one thing so he could build up another. And it's a spiritual temple. It's a place where the Holy God himself can come and live. And it's in the midst of this new wonder that he's created. The church. The church of the living God. You were aliens. You were strangers. You were, you were held in great enmity and contempt and suspicion. But now, now you're a part of the habitation, the place where God himself lives. In a previous illustration when he wrote to the Corinthians, Paul said that the foundation of the church is Christ. No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid upon Christ. Here, he uses a different imagery. Here, he says, the foundation is the apostles and prophets. But, he said, Christ is the chief cornerstone. That stone that provided the stability, the most important piece in the structure. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner why did he seemingly elevate he wasn't elevating apostles and prophets above Christ but the apostles I'm talking about those who saw the risen Christ I'm talking about those in the first century those who had such an encounter with the Lord they preached along with prophets under direct revelation from God those apostles and prophets it is their message, that early message that they preach, that every other ministry has been built upon. And you and I have a part in that even today. Wow, what glorious good news that really is. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said there were, there's two passages, one in chapter 3, verse 16, and then one in chapter 6, verse 19. When you go to the chapter 6, when he said, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? The temple of the Holy Spirit, which temple is holy? He's talking about our actual physical bodies is where God lives within us. He used very similar language in chapter 3, but in that chapter he wasn't talking when he talked about you are the temple of God. 
the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. In chapter 3, he's talking about us collectively. He's talking about us as his church. Build it up together. Wow, Peter said, like lively stones, one upon another. We're a part of the habitation of God. He tore down the one so he might build up the other. And I leave you with this thought. Pastor was talking about the temple uh, of Artemis and uh, the temple of Diana there in, in Ephesus. That temple was so elaborate and incredibly constructed. It was known in that time as one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis. I've been to Ephesus. I got to go a few years ago. I was speaking at a... Uh, a a global leadership summit for national leaders through a missions uh, ministry and and the the event was held in Turkey about 50 miles from modern day uh, or from ancient uh, Ephesus and and we went and because of excavation and all you can see the ruins you can see a lot and and you can catch a glimpse of the magnitude of the city but what you could not see in Ephesus was a temple to, Ar- to Artemis. It was about 400 A.D. As far as we know, that thing came down. All that's left is some of the fragments from the foundation. It was one of the seven wonders of the world, but there's nothing there. Fast forward 1,600 years later, I want to tell you that the church of the living Christ is not You don't even say it's one of the seven great wonders of the world. I'm preaching today. It is the wonder of all worlds that God through Christ developed a plan to take down the most hostile relationship between people groups, Jews and Gentiles, and between the two make a whole new people called the church. It's a marvel. It's a wonder. While ages roll, we'll still be overwhelmed by that truth. And the good news is, every one of us sitting here on this place, we can, we can have a part. God doesn't live in buildings anymore made with hands. That's what Stephen said. He moved out a long time ago, but now he lives among us. And wherever you are, that's where he is. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for this people, so easy to speak to, so hungry for your truth. We ask, O oh Lord, that this great, great series, this great study through this important part of your word will become so engaging and energizing in all of our hearts. We ask, O oh Lord, that every man, every woman, every person sitting here can just contemplate what it means that we don't have to be estranged, alienated, far off anymore. You've brought us near. And when we get right with you, we also, by necessity, must be right with one another. Break down every wall that needs to come down. Build up your holy church as an unfathomable, incomparable temple. Let us be filled with your praises, we ask in your name. Amen.